Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. You're listening to another episode of Arabiyat with Linda and Sreya. I'm Linda. And I'm Sreya. So we have in studio with us today a really special treat. Faisal Atrash, a Syrian-American filmmaker and activist who happens to be an old college friend of mine from UCLA. Well, since UCLA, he's done some really interesting stuff. Part of that is going to USC, University of Southern California, to get a film degree. And with that degree, he's doing some extraordinary things uh, in the Middle East. Faisal, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself, about your background and the work that you've been doing. So I was born in Syria, but my family moved to the U.S. to the San Francisco Bay Area when I was three. So I, I spent you know the majority of my life growing up here. And um, I went to UCLA, the good old days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, at some point at UCLA, I kind of decided that like uh, I got into film. <laughs> and I wanted to, to do that. So by the end, by my senior year, I was like only doing film classes. And uh, after I graduated from UCLA, I spent a year in Syria. Um, I went back just to kind of, this was 2010, and uh, I went back to pretty much get to know, I guess, my culture, heritage, background, uh, spent some real time learning Arabic. Uh, I could I could speak and understand, but I had never learned formal, you know, written Arabic. Um, so I went back in, in 2010, and... Um, lived there, had a great time. I feel so lucky that I, I got to squeeze in that year, less than a year, but about a year um, right before the conflict began. And uh, while I was in Syria, I made my first, what I consider my first short film. Um, it was kind of the first time I went in with the intention of like, okay, I'm going to make a film. And I went in and um, I went and made a, a five-minute short that's online somewhere. <laughs> and uh, I kind of was, I think I was hooked at that point. I think I was like, this is this is cool. And I used that short film to apply to USC while I was in Syria. What was the short film about? It's uh, it's called The March. It's super simple. It's I, I grabbed my cousins and, and his friends. They were like 8 to 10 years old. And um, it's just a very simple story of a group of young boys um, walking to a, a soccer field to play soccer against a group of girls. So uh, it's called The March. It's on YouTube somewhere. And that film, yeah, so I used that film to to apply to USC. And luckily I got in. Let's go back to to you being a Syrian kid in the U.S. Okay, yeah. Because we, a lot of our work covers Arabs in America and what their experiences have been like. Uh, so if you could just talk about being a Syrian kid, and you said you grew up in the Bay Area, and you mentioned in your TED Talk that you were raised with pride of being Syrian, and that's somewhat unusual like for a kid to really take that on uh how how did that come about the name of the game growing up is pretty much understanding what that means uh it's tough for a kid there's so much background with being arab and syrian and the the history of the region and religions and all that so it's 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 really complicated so i think as a kid it's more trying to identify how that relates to your own life or what that means so you kind of create your own definition you don't really know what being syrian means or being arab really means i think in terms of the 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 context i later understood in life 
So for me, it was more, it was a prideful thing. It was a little bit about being different. There's something that makes me different than all my, my friends at school. And um, at the same time, uh, there's this kind of um, balance where sometimes you're either embarrassed or you don't feel comfortable showing your, your you know, Arab or Syrian side. So I think embarrassment is probably the biggest one, like when you're, your parents, you know, um, you have like Arabic food and everyone does it. I remember at lunch, I was always like, oh man, like why can't I just get like, like when I had Lunchables, I was like the happiest. <laughs> like I'm so cool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Instead of like a Lebanese sandwich. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it was kind of about that. It was, um, it was tough to sort of reconcile, I think, uh, not, not in a very overt way or anything, just um, I think more subconsciously. As I look back and remember my life, I don't, I don't remember, I grew up in Millbrae here. Um, I don't remember anything too traumatizing that happened to me because I was Arab living in this, you know, American community. But it was more, it was more for me about uh, feeling that I was at least not the same as my friends around me. There was this whole other side to me. I give my parents a lot of credit now that I'm older and I look back. Um, for sort of instilling these seeds and these roots in my brother and me when we were younger so that they can grow. So at this point, you know, college onwards, we can kind of our, our, by ourselves discover what that actually means in our own way. But in general, I think, you know, I, I was... Um, everyone kind of uses like 2001 as like the defining like kind of before and after. Um, and I remember, you know, when, when September 11th happened... Um, you can feel a little bit of a difference, for sure. For me, I was I was pretty young. I was um, I don't know, twelve-ish. So uh, it wasn't kind of uh, overt, but I, I do remember. Yeah, I do remember things changed, and uh, as we know in general society and culture and, and all that, things changed a lot. Um, but I think going to UCLA and then mostly after UCLA, honestly, uh, is where I kind of really defined, understood who I was. I think. So you mentioned that you moved to Syria after college, uh, and that's where you know you worked on that little the first short you had. Uh, but tell us a little bit about your experience in Syria as a Syrian American, and then this is the first time, correct? You're living in your homeland. Mm -hmm. What was that like? I I say in the TED talk that uh, I went back thinking, kind of, uh, I'm. Finally, I'm going back to Syria. I'm going to be Syrian. I'm going to kind of fill in this small, tiny missing piece that that's that's who I am. And I was I was really excited. And it was it was an amazing experience. But I think what I got out of it was completely different um, in that I came back. I'm like, I'm not Syrian. Who am I? Who am I trying to kid kind of thing? Syrian. And I'm being very specific now about about identities and hyphenated uh, descriptions. So I, I realized that uh, I wasn't American. But I was, you know, Syrian-American, and that's kind of this in-between that, frankly, is, for me now, a very comfortable place to be in. Um, because, because you're right, I went back and I realized that, um, you know, I did, I did not grow up in Syria. I did not um, live in this society and, and completely, I wasn't immersed in this world that's, that's really different. Um, and I think I didn't realize how much how defined I was by, uh, I guess, my context or my society around me, my community around me, which was American growing up. So 
um, I guess I didn't give enough credit to that uh, growing up uh, in terms of how how much that shaped me and my identity. So I went, when I went to when I went back to Syria, um, of course it was, it was amazing. I felt the, this amazing connection to the to the the place and the history and the people. But at the same time, there was always something you know. Uh, sort of a barrier between me and them. So so I always felt like, you know, I wasn't really the same as everyone else walking around me. I wasn't like, I felt I felt different there, I guess, in the, kind of the similar way where in the U.S. it was very subtle, but like, I wasn't different. There is a little more to me, which is the American side. So it's, it's just, it just completely reversed. But um, I'm so grateful for that experience because it did it did sort of teach me how to uh define myself which frankly is the most important thing it doesn't really matter how anyone what it, you know you can say whatever you want in terms of arab syrian all those details but for me i kind of chose this um almost definition to myself as a syrian american whereas before i remember i remember specifically thinking i'm like what am i first like arab syrian american even like if you bring religion into it, like Druze, like that's even more complicated, like can of worms, like what the heck does that mean? <laughs> so it was, it was kind of the, all these terms and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm besides human, I think Syrian American would be the next, the next description. So when you were in Syria, you were there in 2011 when the conflict first broke out, Arab Spring time, take us there. I remember thinking at the time that there's no way this is going to happen in Syria. And I think a lot of people thought that. When it was like, happening in Egypt. When it was happening in Egypt and Tunisia um, and spreading from there, it was kind of, I mean, the, the obvious thought is, is, uh, is Syria next. When in March, in mid-March, when the first protest started in Dara'a in the south, it started, but the, the government did like a crazy job of, of isolating the entire area and, and the truth and the news and all that. They... They forbid journalists from going in and covering. They physically blocked off the, the south. You couldn't go down there. You couldn't drive down there. So it was the first time in my life where I, like, I wanted this information. I always had access to information and, and you know, in quotations, the truth or, or the news. Your American side, huh? My American yeah. side. <laughs> the feeling that yeah. you have access to information. Yeah, exactly. It was this kind of privilege, I guess, of growing up, you know, never having censorship or anything like that. So so it was very strange that like, well, you know, I know something's going on and I read it on the Internet or whatever. But here I can't get this information. And, and frankly, you know, it was uh, frustrating. We'd sit there watching satellite news day and night, like on Fridays. This was so back then when it first started, the protests would always happen on Fridays. In Syria, specifically, and, and all over, it was just a gathering point, Friday mosque, prayer, all that. And in Syria, there was no other uh, legitimate way to gather legally, I think. You need, you know, it's, it's a big deal. So Fridays, Damascus would turn into a ghost town where everyone was afraid to go out. And I remember, uh, like, I had uh, friends who, by, I don't know, within a month or two, Everyone, like Europeans and Americans and foreigners, were being evacuated, or, or not being evacuated, but being, you know, told to leave. So I had friends leaving all the time, and, and I remember going to the airport on a Friday and driving through Damascus, and like on every like major plaza, or street corner, or square, or whatever, you would have like government, uh, you know, paramilitary, whatever you want to call them, um, thugs, chilling on the corners with like batons and their leather jackets, like very, very obvious and put there to intimidate pretty much it was scary i mean to to see them just chilling there on the corners waiting waiting for people to even try something 
Uh, I remember that's what that's what it was like around those days, and uh, we would spend all of Friday glued to the TVs, watching uh, everything Al Jazeera and, and onwards um, to see what was happening. And that's what I mean by frustrating is that we were watching this international, you know, news channel that everyone on on Earth was watching, and we were we were like that was about an hour south of Damascus. So this was happening about an hour away from us, and it was just still kind of like, uh, what's like, are people really dying? Are people really protesting? Are these, uh, you know, what is going on? And it was, it wasn't like physical danger or anything. I never was in physical danger, and the only the only protests I went to were the pro government ones to see what was up. So I went to a, a few of those, and that, that was just kind of what you would expect. It's just the government kind of forcing people to go out. I remember thinking like, wow, there's a lot of like fourteen year old boys here. Um, and, and they were all kind of just hanging out, <laughs> dancing and, and listening to music and, and repeating whatever chant kind of happened. It was just fun for them. Do you not believe that there were legitimate government supporters at those protests? I think they were. See, it's, it's hard now looking back uh, in like 2020 hindsight, like how many of them are actually government supporters versus uh, this really deep indoctrination with Syrians and their last 40 years of history where... They think they're government supporters kind of thing. Um, it's just more of a, the other side or any other narrative has been sort of blocked. So I don't, you know, I don't doubt that if that wasn't blocked or if they're exposed to it or a lot of them when they leave Syria or when they fled during this conflict and come to Europe or the U.S., they're like a lot more outspoken against the government. Like I'm just speaking from personal experience of my family where we do have, you know, a side of my family that's very anti-government than a side that's, that's more or less pro-government or was pro-government. I think at this point it's it's hard to you know to say pro-government anyone. I don't know if anyone actually believes that, but uh, definitely, definitely for for the longest time in the beginning, um, even family members were split, and then they still are all over all over Syria. Tell us how you get to the point where you end up in the Zatari camp in Jordan. That's your next project, correct? So yeah, I went back to the U.S. to start my master's. That fall, I was going to start at USC. So, so the conflict, you know, was full, full underway at that point. This was around beginning of 2013. And um, I had a friend, a good friend of mine who was Palestinian, uh, Jordanian-Palestinian, who had gone to the camp a few months before. And he came back telling me he didn't, he didn't go shoot. He was recording interviews and um, talking to refugees and stuff. And he was telling me these stories. And for me hearing this, and he's like, you have to go see it. You have to, you know, there's all kinds of crazy stories and all that. And I was like... I, I do, I do. As a, as a Syrian, a Syrian American, like I have some responsibility to to at least go see and hear and tell this story. So, sort of as a filmmaker, it was like, you know, what can I do? I want to try to make a film. I want to try to make a film that covers the refugees. Um, and, and plus, I wasn't going to risk going into Syria or anything. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like a, a war reporter or anything. So, the the refugee situation was very was the most accessible to me, and and frankly you know, very relevant, very relevant because, and I, I as you know, I mean, the, this was, this was, uh, the refugee crisis is going on right now, but I mean, it's, it's always been a crisis. So it's funny that, you know, two years later, finally they, they're, you know, it's called what it is, I guess. And uh, be- yeah, the Europeans had to start, you know, seeing what was going on and dealing with it. So I guess it became the problem, right? Yeah. Once it hit their doorsteps. Yep. It was well, they're like- still, they're still calling them migrants and people are still arguing about whether they are refugees or migrants, because like we're still saying like, oh, maybe they're migrants and not refugees, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and a lot of it has to do with with making them the other, 
which which for me my trip was the opposite of that because even for me I mean I mean I I certainly didn't know what a refugee was I never met a refugee especially in the sense besides like Palestinian who would pretty much by you know by now become part of the societies they live in sort of uh, I guess you can't really separate but uh, an actual refugee fleeing conflict I had never met like most people on earth so going there one of the the reasons for doing this was to to put that human I mean I I know Syrians I know who these people are I've seen them so I know that like hey wait a second like all of a sudden they have this title of refugee now and like you think of them differently when I knew that like you know well I grew up seeing these people around me and I and I am part of them so I saw this image of a barber cutting hair in Turkey in a refugee camp and uh, it was on it was on dirt floor and uh, a, a dresser with a mirror as as a sort of makeshift counter is this uh, Syrian refugees? It's Syrian in refugees, yeah, exactly. Syrian refugees in Turkey, and then that, at that point, it was just kind of like, wow, I never even thought like how they live their day to day lives now that they become refugees overnight, and what would that be like? So, and I love the idea of a barber specifically because it is so day to day and fundamental, and I kind of set uh, set my sights on that, on focusing on that because I thought. Uh, a barber is that, or cutting your hair is that. It's a fundamental part of being human where no matter who you are, refugee or not, it is something that you've done and you can relate to and you you have a lot of experience with throughout your life. So that was one reason. The other reason was uh, a barber. Again, I think in, in most societies, just by virtue of being a barber, they're very in tune with the community around them and they see a lot of people and all kinds of people and all kinds of uh, layers of society. So the idea would be to, to talk to them and, and hopefully, by virtue of them being barbers, they'd be a little more connected to either what they're saying or they've heard more stories or they can tell us more. So that was why we, we focused on barbers on that trip. And we we fundraised. So I, I went in June 2013. I was in uh, Lebanon, in Beirut. And um, I went on, on, by myself on a, on a pre-production trip to go see if it was, it was even possible. And the Zatari camp had been around for just under a year at that point. And uh, it was so, looking back now, I mean, this is this is two years later now and about like five Zatari trips later. It was so different looking back at that first time. I literally went into the camp on my passport, on my American passport. I just showed up my passport at the, the door. It's like born in Syria or whatever. They let me in. And uh, it was free reign. Like there was no kind of real... Um, apparent or present administration or anything like that like you know the military was there UN was there but compared to now what it's become and I'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a, so um, I went back I, I came back to the US and this I think like just literally July 1st or something is when I got back and by August 2nd me and my crew had, were flying out to Jordan to film so we did a fundraising campaign that month a crowdfunding uh, campaign online and uh, we were we were funded and um yeah we so we we flew out a small crew and they none of them were I was the only arab or syrian amongst them the only one who spoke arabic too so we went out there and um for some of them it was kind of the, sort of the first time definitely the first time in the refugee camp um some of them first time in in the arab country so it, everything was a new experience for for all of us it was it was it was exciting and fun and 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 when we finally got into the camp for the first time with the crew, and they're they're all three of them are, uh, two of them are American, like white American, 
and the other one is uh, Czech, European. So light skin, blonde hair, blue eyes stand out in a, in a refugee camp of Syrians. So you can tell right away we're either foreigners or journalists or whatever whatever we are. So as I remember as soon as we got into the camp, there were these these kids nearby, and they just started throwing rocks at us when we first got. We were just walking all of a sudden, like I feel like something hit my backpack or side or something. What is that? Look back, and there's a bunch of kids throwing rocks at us. And I think I think frankly, I, we, none of us knew what the heck to do. Like it was just, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> what do we do? So we we just kept walking. We 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 let it be, and, and you know, thankfully nothing kind of. It, it wasn't like that dangerous, but of course, you know, if a rock hit my head or something, but. Um, and and frankly, like it's it was, it was more, I guess, in in the U.S. for example, if little kids were throwing rocks at me, I'd go up to them and it'd be like, "What the? What are you doing?" But there, it was kind of the situation where, as soon as we entered the refugee camp, like it was kind of like this unsaid thing that, like, well, the rules are different here. This isn't this isn't like being outside in the city. Um, You're in their territory. Exactly. You're in their ter- and that's exactly why they were throwing rocks is because we were foreigners going into their territory, and it was uh, you know emotions are high and it's sensitive and so uh, and the, the biggest reason I came to learn was that um, one of the the biggest things is that they they felt exploited at that point. It's been a year of the you know a lot of them had been there for months or more, and they see all these foreigners come in all the time, and whether it's the news coming in for sound bites or, or these images of suffering people leaving and never coming back or doing anything uh, about it. And still, I mean, uh, this was, I mean, it's just crazy to think that uh, so early on the conflict, stuff was being promised and there was hope like, oh, maybe they might help or maybe whatever. And looking back now, like four years later, like, no, no, no one, no one kept any promises really. So um, back then, yeah, things were, were a little different. There was this, this hope. So yeah, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't blame the kids. We couldn't, we just kept walking. You know, once we got into it, there was also a time where we got we got like mobbed by kids. Uh, we we brought gifts, <laughs> like we're gonna bring pencils and erasers and planes and whatever to give to the kids. And our first our first trip in, we 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 went out there. We met some people. We gave some some gifts to their kids, and then within like five minutes, they'd told the whole neighborhood. So we were like, every kid, like I don't know, like thirty, forty kids suddenly were around us demanding toys and it was a huge kind of like sobering uh, lesson um, about the whole context and I guess how naive uh, especially I mean uh, frankly how naive the the world is or you know Americans in my experience growing up can be about aid and what aid is and what 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 it means to send help to these suffering people we brought these toys and, and all of a sudden we realized it wasn't about the toys. It was just about the fact that we were giving away something for free. And it had become sort of this survivalist mentality where it doesn't matter what it is. These are erasers and pencils. They, they really like don't do anything. But you had to have one, whatever it was. You have to have one and the guy next to you or girl next to you is not going to get one. So it was, it was the situation where we literally got mobbed. They you know grab our backpacks, grab everything we have in there and and once all the kids had taken the, the, the toys, they would just start chanting on their own and picking up rocks like, we want toys, we want toys. And um, I, I think that was more so than kids throwing rocks at me in the beginning. That was I legitimately felt like kind of scared at that point because, you know, 30 kids, and, and I have no logical 
way to to disperse them and literally some local men or brothers or something came and like kicked some of them out of the way to get out of there and we walked straight towards like the security area um just to kind (laughs) of chill out and calm down for a bit so that was that was also another lesson in like reality of the situation about who these these people are and what their backgrounds are and it kind of helped me understand like like wow this isn't exactly what what i thought it was it's a lesson in context right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah well how did the adults treat you when you first came I think uh, g- generally very, very good. It was a very uh, welcoming, uh, hospitable environment. And um, especially when they find out, I, I had the benefit. I know, and I only realized this after my last trip. I, uh, I was in the Zatari camp uh, for uh, July to August of this year, 2015. So only after this trip did I realize how lucky I was making that film, how much access I had. Because... One, back then the rules were a little different. Also, that what I learned later was, uh, and, and this is partly because the camp has become a lot more strict and um, in terms of enforcing who goes in and out and all that. And uh, at that point, we went in and they had some like PR guy. We checked in with security. They had some, some PR guy say, you know, um, they were supposed to send him with us and we had supposed to have someone with us the entire time. And as soon as we got out, he's like, here's my number. If you need anything, call me. So we're like, okay. We, we go into the camp and literally can walk around and talk to anyone we want. And that was, was kind of incredible because uh, it did give us this kind of access. And then the, the, the benefit we had too was that I had applied for a permit as like a USC student, which was also kind of sketchy. Like the only reason I got the permit was because I was, I was bonding with the, the guy that signs the initial application because he went to high, he went to university in Texas and he's like, dude, he's like, we give permits to, uh, you know, Al Jazeera and like these news, news agencies and these institutions. We can't give you a permit. That was like, it was, it was under, I remember it was under, um, I put like a university of Southern California or something. And I had some letters from teachers to, that supported me in what I was doing. So it was never was an official USC project, but it was more to show that these, you know, I was a student uh, studying film and all that, and I was there to make a film b- about it. Um, so he, yeah, he was, uh, you know, it was it was literally like I was sitting with him in his office. He's like, ah, whatever, and he just signed it. Just wasta. That's yeah, how it was exactly. That's yeah, that's how yeah. you gotta do the it. way the way it works in the Arab world, and I I knew that I knew that, and that's why. Uh, I had worked on that before, so because it set the precedent. Once he'd done it before, uh, there was no there's no turning back for for their whole institution at that point. Mm. <laughs> it was like I have this permit; you guys can do it again. I know you can. So from that point on, it was actually pretty easy for me to get the permit renewed. So going back into the camp now, it was the the, the access really was incredible, and we met a lot of barbers and we set up uh, two days of free haircuts, and that was part of our fundraising thing. Is where we we said that you know with all the money you guys donate, we're going to do free haircuts in the camp where. We pay them by the number of heads they, they they cut that day. So we did that with two different barbershops across camp. And it was a great way to meet them and uh, for them to, to build trust also. And us being students, we ha- we didn't have the baggage of any kind of political uh, motivation or anything like that. So it was this, uh, again, looking back, this very comfortable environment for us and them. Um, and in general, it's really hard to find people to be on camera, even now. Uh, so we were we were lucky um, that we found uh, the subject of of our film Samer, 
and from from there it was just uh, I mean it was pretty smooth sailing from 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 there on till we finished and got out. Uh, the whole trip was about I don't know like seventeen eighteen days. Not all of which of course were in the camp, but uh, it was just a, an incredible experience. We got back to the U.S. and started. Uh, you know, three of us were USC students, so we we you know we finished our last year at USC. Um, I started editing the film, and in March two thousand fourteen. I got invited to workshop the film in Beirut in Lebanon, a small uh, Syrian organization. And it it was an opportunity um, that I wasn't expecting just to go back. I was like, I'm in Beirut. Of course, I'm going to go back to the camp. So I went by myself. The second trip was just by myself. I brought my camera, a small microphone, and um, went again, went to Jordan. I'm on by myself, back up to the camp. And I didn't have time to get a permit. I started the application, but I didn't actually have a permit. And um, when I got to the, the again, and every time the, the camp is becoming more and more secure and militarized and fortified, and there's suddenly there's like cement walls and barbed wire in places. So it's like it's it's very um, you can you can feel the difference. And um, at that point, I, I you know I traveled halfway across the world, and I was like, I'm not leaving till till I get in the camp and. Uh, again, this is—I guess—it's—it's being. This wasn't even that long ago, but I'm gonna—I'm gonna give the the bold the boldness. Uh, I'm attribute that to being young. <laughs> I don't know, but but I went into security. They're like, "You're this isn't the permit. Get out of here. Go back to Amman." I was like, "Okay." I leave the security thing and then just cut straight into the camp as fast as I can so that they yeah. Wow. So I I I cut into the camp uh, and walk straight to Sama's place <laughs> where the subject of my my film and I actually spent the night in the camp too which is something I really wanted to do I didn't get a chance to do, which is totally, like, you're not allowed to. Every, all, all, like, aid workers and all these, it needs to be out by 5 p.m. or something. Mm. Um, so I just got to spend the night there. I shot, uh, at that point, I had edited a lot, a bar- large portion of the film, so I shot kind of these missing pieces. And also what I shot, I think, really came to sort of wrap, wrap up the film nicely and t- thematically. It was, it was, again, another... another uh, sobering experience because this was um about seven months later after the first trip and like if you put hope onto a graph over time you know slowly you can see in their in their demeanor and the way they behave and the way they talk that hope is going down 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 and i think that's why i say that 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 second trip really kind of defined the themes of the film that i made uh, because having not been there the second time and seeing the difference, it would have just been a lot easier to, to to have this initial image of like, wow, these people are really kind of surviving out here and they're doing a great. It's it's over time, no matter what. If you're in a refugee camp, it's just you can have all the food and water and shelter that you want. But uh, I called the refugee camp purgatory. Like there's it's it's the worst place to to waste away time. Because you can't leave and there's nothing to do and you know that there's, you know, you're not getting anything out of it. Uh, it just, it's just a situation where you're just eating and drinking and, and sleeping and waking up for just to live, frankly. Like there's no greater meaning in life, I guess. So that, that, that trip and onwards and since then sort of has solidified that understanding for me and, and why refugee camps are such dangerous places psychologically and eventually uh, even even in terms of uh, these places being the, the uh, I don't know like ghettos I guess so what's the name of the film that you made at the Zatari refugee camp the film's called Growing Home and it's a 22 minute short documentary 
um, about a barber who lives in the in the camp. And um, the film has been, we finished the film in, uh, about a year ago, October 2014. And it's been showing at international festivals um, around the world. I think we're around like 16 festivals right now that we're either have screened in or going to screen in. And um, it's been it's been great to, to, you know, once the film was done and showing it to people um, and sort of traveling with the film, it's been great to talk to people and hear their, their reactions and sort of pretty much raise awareness because you do realize that, uh, I mean, nobody, nobody has much m- information about being a refugee or what a refugee camp actually is like besides the, the sound bites or whatever that they hear. But in terms of daily life, nobody really knows what that means. And um, part of the reason I wanted to make this film was to, was to humanize that that in terms of um, I wanted to humanize that and make a film in which you can you can kind of imagine yourself like what would be happen if I became a refugee or my brother or my cousin or uncle or whatever or father became a refugee what would that be like um, because these people aren't uh, and one of the biggest things I came to realize is that these people aren't any different than than uh, you or me in terms of their background or their, their, their I guess what they're used to in terms of their life being, especially the comforts, having a home, a car, uh, being able to go to restaurants when they want to, being able to go on vacation or take trips with their families. In that sense, you know, these people were all doing that beforehand. They weren't beggars in the streets. 99.9% of them were not. Uh, But it's just crazy to... uh, That was one of the the biggest uh, impacts uh, making the film had on me is that I realized that, oh my gosh, like, for some reason, just giving them the title of refugee brings them lower than, than anyone else. Even myself, I think, well, you know, they're a refugee, I'm not. But <laughs> there, is no, there is no difference. There is no difference. Except for everything that's worth living for, it's taken away from you and you become a refugee. Exactly. And I think uh, even, and, and, and the film has a, a small part of that where, where um, Samar talks about that, where, um, you know, they were eventually in the camp and through this administrative thing, they were given identity cards that say Syrian refugee. And the, the question is, like, why are you, why am I not just Syrian? What does it mean? And it does psychologically change your own perception, I'm sure. And over time, um, like, like many refugee populations in the world, over time, it does start to affect the psyche and, and the sort of the communal identity of the population. So as someone who's an Arab who did Arab activism and and was around the Palestinian cause your whole life, has your experience with Syrian refugees today changed your view of the Palestinian refugee crisis and just refugees in general? I I think it definitely has. It definitely has in that I understand, um, especially, I mean, having been around Palestinians for a long time and seeing the effect of it decades and decades and decades later, um, I still didn't understand what it meant to initially be a refugee. And maybe, honestly, probably a lot of Palestinians don't know what that means to be an actual refugee. It's become part of their identity as a title for so long um, that it's just sort of accepted. But this has definitely opened up my eyes to to sort of show me what it actually means to be a refugee escaping conflict. And then, moving forward from that, how that affects who you are and who the who you are sort of as a communal identity as well as being refugees together. And now moving forward, um, Syrians are going to be, 
I don't. I, I definitely don't think it's the new Palestinians or the new Afghans or anything because the the context is so different. Um, in terms of uh, you know small political details or geo- geopolitics, but f- for more or less they are yeah they're gonna I think eventually be sort of similar. Refugee will always moving forward now be a part of the Syrian conflict and the Syrian identity. Um, it is this uh, communal kind of scar that we've we we will all bear as Syrians moving forward, and um, I think. Uh, it, it is something that that everyone sort of needs to remember, because um, uh, and it's so hard to, to talk about this now, living it. You know, living this the refugee crisis is and and what's been going on is is kind of happening still and developing still. But I think uh, from what I've seen, um, especially like the Zatari camp, that was a camp and still is a camp, definitely in terms of tents and caravans. But it's it's become a city. So I can I can understand how the Palestinian camps became cities, and then they became you know institutionalized into their communities, and then suddenly, this was home, and this refugee camp, and although they call the Palestinian refugee camps refugee camps in Jordan, for example, if you go into it, it's it's kind of this um, uh, ghetto slum kind of thing, but it's not it's not actually camps or tents, um, and that's uh, the Zatari camp specifically. Um, has been developing and evolving, and every time I go, I'm always surprised to see that that uh, development. And it it does make me realize what it means to be a refugee from beginning, fleeing conflict, to settling in a camp, to having that camp become your home. And then again, we're, we haven't seen the end of this story yet, but I can imagine some people never returning home. Definitely. In an ironic way, the one hope I have is that because the Syrians are fleeing, crossing the Mediterranean and and entering Europe's borders, as we talked about, it's in a way I feel like that gives some hope to a possibility of the conflict ending sooner than with the Palestinians because Europeans never really had to deal with the crisis the way that they are with the Syrians. And unfortunately, the only time that you see things moving and shaking is when Westerners are being affected by it. So I, I do see that as one element of difference. And also that the refugee camps, the refugee crisis is becoming a global crisis. Migrants and refugees and conflict are increasing daily. can our listeners catch a trailer of your movie and find out about showings? So you can uh, find the trailer on our website, refugeebarbers.com, along with information about the film and the screenings and all that, and then to see if there's any screening, upcoming screening near you. Eventually, soon enough, uh, I will put the film online in, in some way. Before we move on to your most recent project, I just want to talk about your work that you did with the children in Zatari camp, teaching them how to make movies on their smartphones. How was that working with them, and how did they receive it? Yeah, I did I did a three-week film workshop where uh, me and an, another Syrian uh, filmmaker taught teens in the camp, so around like 13 to 17, 18 years old, how to make documentary films on their mobile phones. So we took 20 teens in the camp and over the course of three weeks taught them the, theoretically sort of what, what a documentary film is, what's the difference, how to do it. 
And then we actually had them come up with ideas and shoot these little films, three to five minutes. Uh, so so we, it was a, a great experience for, for them and for me, of course. I really wanted to do it because I always think about the young people, both my age and younger, and how their lives are going to be affected by all this because uh, they still have their whole lives to live. And without this foundation, whether it's education or whatever it is, they're going to have an uphill battle from here. So I always think about them, and I wanted to do this project because I wanted to just to do what I can as a filmmaker and offer some type of skill that they can take with them whether that is something they can bring back to Syria when it's time or in whatever community or help them get jobs in whatever community they're in, I wanted to provide some something other than, uh, I don't know, let's say like aid in terms of uh, money or food or shelter or anything like that, which I think that type of aid is uh, very impactful for them um, because once, once you do get, your again, your food and your shelter taken care of, then what? One of one of the one of the coolest things for me uh, was that, you know, my my experience in the camp before was to make this film, and in this in this situation, I didn't have a film to make. I was teaching these kids for them to make films, and it it really was uh, an opportunity for me to get to know them and really understand and put myself in their shoes. Well, what is, what is it really like to live here? And I think over the course of the three weeks, especially because they would all go shoot footage at home or um, they would all go shoot footage at home and in the community around them so every day we'd come we'd come back and start class with all this new footage and I would get to see these sides of of the refugees and their lives that I you know that I really wouldn't see in any other way so it was this amazing opportunity to get for me to go behind the scenes of their lives and I I learned so much and and it really did kind of cement the idea or, or conceptually in my mind well, would it be, what would it be like to actually wake up here and then I have to go get water or I have to cook food or take a shower? You know, that, that, those kind of details uh, became clear to me. I, I mean, I did realize how terrible that is and how terrible, I guess, more how terrible it would be if this actually became their lives for a, either forever or for an extended period of time. And that's where I, I really was like, oh, no. Are there any plans to release uh, the footage the kids worked on, uh, put it together as a little thing? Yeah, so we're working on uh, editing the films. We didn't have time to edit uh, during this workshop. It's a whole other, uh, you know, you could teach years of editing. So we, we, we kind of took it upon ourselves to edit their films. So we will be editing their films and uh, finishing them up. There's uh, about nine films. We're going to definitely show the films in the camp to, to the kids and their families. And then also trying to get some, whether it's festivals or organizations, to screen these films as sort of a block, uh, whether it's film festivals or, or just independent events. So we're working on that right now, yeah. We're hope, hoping, hoping to take that uh, further and around the world. So one of the, the main reasons of doing this workshop was to give the, the kids a voice because, you know, I, I went in there as a filmmaker and made a film about them. And I will always have my, my filter and my... Uh, background to, to, to infuse into that but they you know with this skill will be able to tell the story like they want it however that is so in a way it was, it was to empower them yeah that's great it's good to give agency to people whose narratives are told and retold by outsiders who are you know mostly disconnected from their lived experiences so it's a great thing that you're doing that uh, I'm sure there are many people who'd like to see that footage so definitely get on that yeah 
Yeah. Uh, well, let's move on to what you're working on right now. Tell us a little, little bit about that. You say it's an Arab Western. What is an Arab Western? That's I've never heard of that. It's an oxymoron to us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Eastern Western. Yeah. No. It's it's starting to to mix different terminologies. So this film is called From the Mountain. It's what I'm working on now is a short that I want to eventually make into a feature about my great grandfather, Sultan Bash al Atrash, who was the leader of the Great Syrian Revolt in 1925 against the French colonialists. He's a big figure historically for Syrians and Arabs alike, and it was this time when Arab nationalism was kind of just starting and growing, and it did sort of set the stage between the Great Syrian Revolt and the Arab Revolt um, with Lawrence of Arabia and all that it did sort of set the stage for, for everything to come afterwards. So this was a big event in, in Arab and Syrian history, and of course my family's history. So it's something I've always grown up with. Uh, it's something my family has always grown up with. And um, this film will be about one of the sort of inciting incidents of the Great Revolt, Great Syrian Revolt in 1925. It's a, it'll be a standalone piece that I hope to eventually make into a feature about the entire Great Syrian Revolt. And I've kind of uh, adopted the a description or genre of Arab Western, which I give credit to a film called Deeb, which is uh, a Jordanian film that just came out not too long ago about a, a, a coming-of-age Bedouin boy. It's a coming-of-age story about a Bedouin boy, Jordanian Saudi desert. And when this film came out, it did really well internationally and just got uh, nominated as the Jordanian film to the Academy Awards. And... Um, it was described as an Arab Western. And when I heard that, I hadn't seen the film or anything. I'd seen the trailer and all that. I hadn't seen the film, but it kind of like, my mind was just kind of like, like, oh my gosh. Like, what a great genre to explore. Uh, and let me explain now what Arab Western uh, means. Uh, Arab Western, for me, is a fusion uh, of, of many things. And frankly, I, th I think it's still sort of undefined just because the only film I consider to be sort of a recent Arab Western is Deeb. But I think it's still being defined, and what I define it as is that there are so many similarities. Now I'm talking cinematically, and if you take away the politics, that's why Western uh, might confuse things. But Western in the sense of a classical Western film. Think of like the cowboy films or Clint Eastwood or something. So, uh, you know, take away the cowboys, take away the, the, the politics and whatever kind of crazy discrimination and racism <laughs> came with that, I'm saying more cinematically. There's a lot of, and thematically, there's a lot of similarities between these stories and what this story is. So in terms of um, the, the, the visual style of the film, the open plains, the, the, the role of land and geography in the film as a character, uh, the themes of good versus evil. So all these kind of uh, greater, uh, you know, themes and symbols and, and the idea of a Western, I think, can be applied to sort of understand or cinematically tell the story of different events of Arab history. So I'm, I, and it's, it's kind of, a, you know, in the end, this is something that is not going to affect, I guess, the film entirely. Like, I'm going to make a film regardless. And when, when that film is made, uh, it can be analyzed however people want to analyze it. But I think it would be very cool to have to have it sort of analyzed in that in that lens or filter of an, an Arab Western. You can definitely you will be able to compare um, and write a paper about it if you want to. But again, I'm just I'm, I'm going to make the film with with that in mind, and I'm I'm curious to see where that leads because again, this is uh, Arab Western is not an established genre or anything. 
but it would be cool to see where that goes. And I'm excited about doing that. And that's why I wanted uh, this film to sort of help uh, open the door for that, both for myself and for Arab, Arab cinema in general. I mean, it'd be so cool to have this film made and where I was inspired by Deeb and then other people are inspired by, by me. And again, this is just a tiny part of Arab cinema. But it would be so cool to, to expand and explore that. We're also very excited to see what work you come up with in your next project. So we've been speaking to Syrian-American filmmaker Faisal Atrash. He was born in Syria, raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. He talked about his short documentary, Growing Home. Where can people catch yeah. you and your work uh, if they're interested? Yeah, if you're, if you're interested in, in following what I'm up to, you can uh, go to my website, FaisalAtrash.com. F-A-I-S-A-L-A-T-T-R-A-C-H-E.com. Okay, we'll link to that as well. And uh, you could find out just uh, news about what I'm, I'm up to, and then uh, you can also get a link to another short film of mine about Syrian civil- civilian journalists called Documenters um, up on my website. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Arabiyat. Our theme song is by Muqata. The track is called Ahyat. You can catch him on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash B-O-I-K-U-T-T. And if you have any questions or concerns or you'd like to pitch a show to us, please email us at arabiyat.podcast at gmail.com. That's A-R-A-B-I-Y-A-A-T dot podcast at gmail.com. <laughs>